listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Welcome to Belaboured, episode 132. Today, we're going to dig into the union election at the Nissan plant in Canton, Mississippi. What happened? What went wrong? What can we learn? But first, the news. A workforce that we haven't talked about that much on this show, but, well, perhaps we should, caught our attention last week as nearly 2,000 auto mechanics at new car dealerships across Chicago went on strike. The mechanics at 140 different car dealers in Chicago are members of Automobile Mechanics Local 701, and they walked out after a contract agreement was not reached and still, at recording time, has not been reached. The Mechanics Union bargains with the Chicago Automobile Trade Association, and they have made their concessions in the last two contracts, as of course have many workers whose jobs and union contracts even survived the 2008 financial crisis and Great Recession. But like many others, they're now seeking to get back some of what they gave up to restore, among other things, the 40-hour work week to get better schedules and notably higher apprentice wages, which of course is something that flies in the face of the usual complaint that union workers are only making demands for themselves. The union had already gotten the dealers to agree to 5% annual raises, full pensions, and healthcare benefits but as it remains in the second week of the strike, is still asking for more. Scheduling, perhaps not surprisingly, seems to be the issue that the management has the biggest problem with. We've talked about this issue plenty on this podcast before, most recently perhaps in episode 130 when we heard from retail workers on scheduling. It's worth pointing out again, since we are going to be talking about uh, many of these things in our main conversation today, that it's often not wages or even benefits that employers resist so much when it comes to bargaining with a union. It's conceding the workers any control over their time or the production process. We will keep an eye on the mechanic strike, and if you are a striking Chicago auto mechanic, let us know how it's going at belaboredatdescentmagazine.org. From sexist office memos to imploding Uber CEOs, it seems like there's always trouble brewing in Silicon Valley these days. But a resounding labor victory cut through the noise in July when 500 workers at Facebook's cafeteria voted to unionize. The food service workers, who are employed through the vendor contractor Flagship, voted to join Unite Here, one of the labor groups alongside the Teamsters, that are organizing blue-collar workers across Silicon Valley and slowly helping to close the wealth gap amid the tech sector's savage inequality. With this Facebook cafeteria vote, organizers are highlighting how this workforce, largely made up of poor people of color, represents, ironically, precisely the diversity that the tech world is lacking in its upper ranks. It's the vertical inequality of big tech that's driving the exploitation and impoverishment of black and Latino workers at the bottom of the Silicon Valley economy. And the structural racism is deepened by housing segregation and surrounding social disinvestment. The region's food service jobs overall mire workers in poverty through low pay, erratic schedules, and unsafe working conditions. And dining hall service workers in Silicon Valley generally earn less than $700 a week and sink about two-thirds of each paycheck into monthly rent. Across the area, median family incomes have sunk by about 20% from 2000 to 2010. Unions are making inroads, however. Recently unionized shuttle bus drivers at Facebook, who are pushing back against an increasingly deregulated driver-for-hire workforce, recently negotiated a contract raising hourly wages by about 50% to $27.50 an hour. Unite Here and Teamsters are also working with the Silicon Valley Grassroots Labor Community Coalition called Silicon Valley Rising, to campaign for local minimum wage hikes in San Jose and other counties, along with affordable housing legislation and improvements in the neighborhood infrastructure. These initiatives are making a difference for non-union precarious local workers as well. San Jose's Opportunity to Work initiative, for example, established standards for stable hours and sustainable schedules uh, across the retail workforce and encourages local firms to hire full-time as opposed to part-time workers. In other words, they're helping to change Silicon Valley into not just a great place to write code, but an awesome place to raise a family on a living wage. 
As tech CEOs come under fire for not caring about fairness in the workplace, they ought to look past the executive suite and into their dining halls, parking lots, and shuttle buses as sites to build real social justice. Following the vote, I spoke with Samuel Rashid II, a line cook at the Facebook cafeteria, about what the union means to him. Basically, um, I, I, I wanted to be a part of the union because uh, I wanted to provide a better lifestyle and a better living situation for my family and my son. I think that's why most people decided to join the union. Uh, you know, we, we I enjoy the Bay Area. I enjoy working at Facebook. And I, you know, appreciate the opportunity that they gave me to work here. You know, the Bay Area has a lot of good schools, not a good job opportunities, and it's constantly growing. And I think this is the best place for me to raise my family and in order for my son to be successful, to be around all of these companies and have the options to go and work for these companies one day. It's really important that I join, that I thought I needed to join the union so that I can have the support of my other co-workers and we can continue to work here and build a foundation for future employees and for our children. Persuading your fellow workers to join you, uh, were they easily convinced or did you need to talk them through it? Oh, well, I don't think we have to do too much talking. That's the reason why we were able to get so many people to sign up so quickly. I think that we all have family. We all have people in our lives that we want better for. We all want to continue to be able to live in this rapidly growing Silicon Valley. And in order for us to do that, I think, along with a lot of my coworkers, felt that it was best. We, we did unite and we showed that we can be one and we have more power as one instead of individually. There's the, um, the cafeteria workers and the service workers in this, you know, small part of the world is so many. And to have us all on the same page, all going for the same goal, it makes everything else a lot easier. That was Facebook line cook Samuel Rashid II on why he voted union. In your dystopian all-work-all-the-time tech future, not to be confused with the dystopian the robots have taken all our jobs future, a Wisconsin company made news last week by offering to microchip its employees. Three Square Market generously offered to cover the costs for the $300 microchips to any employee who wanted one. The chips inserted into the hand apparently allow the worker to make purchase in their break room micro-market, which is provided, of course, by Three Square Market itself, open doors, log into computers, and use the copy machine. Why these things require a microchip is a mystery to me. Some 40 workers donned I Got Chipped t-shirts. This whole thing is really horrifying me. And they were embedded with the chips. According to USA Today, which covered this among many other media outlets, Quote, the chip is not a tracker, nor does it have GPS in it, so the boss can't track your movements, company officials say. Still, to those who worry about Big Brother having more control over our lives, Three Square Market President Patrick McMullen says you should, quote, take your cell phone and throw it away, and all of those quotes. Gee, what a nice boss. It should perhaps not surprise listeners that Three Square Market is, among other things, in the prison business. The company provides its micro markets, whatever those are, to businesses and correctional facilities, and the microchips are part of its plan to move to cashless payments at said markets. In response to the news of the microchipping, at least one lawmaker responded by putting forward a bill to ban the practice in her home state of Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania State Rep Tina Davis said, quote, an employee's body is their own and they should have the final say as to what will be added to it. My bill will protect employees from being punished or retaliated against for choosing not to have the subdermal microchip or other technological advice implanted. As technology advances, we need to make sure we provide employee protections that keep up with these advances and do not allow employers to have control over their employees' bodies. I am, as I said, horrified by this practice, but maybe some listeners feel differently. You can uh, get at us at belabored at descentmagazine.org and let us know what you think. And there are more links so you can read more about the microchipping at descentmagazine.org. You might have noticed that Trump has been getting heat from all sides of the political spectrum over immigration. 
On the one hand, he's proposing draconian restrictions on borders and terrorizing communities with ICE raids. On the other hand, he's also been criticized for not cracking down hard enough on corporate-friendly loopholes in the system, like a fast-track green card for wealthy immigrants. Now he's tried to marry both in a policy that has something for all sides to hate. The main plank of the policy is to slash regular immigration in half overall, primarily by restricting family reunification. Instead, under Trump's proposal, the government would use a so-called points-based system to import workers specifically based on their job skills, education level, and English-speaking ability. This is supposed to get in the right kind of workers while keeping the wrong kind supposedly out. The Billy favors in Congress, which is most likely already dead on arrival, promises to cut overall immigration by about 40 to 50 percent annually. And even though the vast majority of legal immigration in recent years has come through family connections and not jobs, Trump's proposal makes it clear that he sees migrant labor as purely a commodity, not a humanitarian cause or a social issue. But of course, we knew that already. In the end, though, He'll get neither the economics nor the social goods he's looking for or promising because it's a morally bankrupt proposition to treat workers as expendable widgets for economic development alone. Already other wealthy countries like Canada are snatching up elite workers from other countries, especially South Asia, by, lo and behold, acting like they actually welcome them into the country and want them to stay. Meanwhile, Trump is moving to shut out immigrants because they are mere family members of existing immigrants already here instead of these supposedly desirable workers that Trump wants to import exclusively. In fact, Trump is proposing to shut out the very same people who should be forming the future labor force and, for that matter, the future of the country. Instead, young people across the country who have grown up here undocumented are in danger of being deported at massive rates and their families are being split apart at unprecedented levels. And that undermines future prospects of youth and children of immigrants, costs families enormously in both personal anguish and economic breadwinning capabilities, and is costing many workers who fought to earn a living and have slowly formed the foundation of many local economies, both their lives and their livelihoods. Trump might think he can step all over immigrants' rights in the name of development, but soon the floor will fall out from under his plans to set an immigration ceiling once he realizes that he's dealing with people and not just profits. And now we're talking to Chris Brooks. He is a longtime writer, organizer, and observer of Southern politics and Southern labor with Labor Notes. And he's got a few things to say about what happened with the UAW campaign at the Nissan plant in Canton, Mississippi, what went wrong, and how we might make it right. Okay, so to start off, just brief us on what went down in Mississippi um, at the Nissan plant with the UAW's attempt at uh, organizing a southern auto plant, and uh, why did so many in the labor movement across the country care about this union vote? So the United Auto Workers have been working for over a decade to try to organize uh, this Nissan auto plant in Canton, Mississippi. Uh, So Nissan has 45 auto plants worldwide, and the only three that are non-union exist in the United States, uh, all three in the South. There's two in Tennessee uh, and one in Mississippi. This plant is located in Canton, um, so about 80% of the folks who work there are black. It's in the, the Black Belt section of the South, and the population of this town is about 13,000 people. So it's, it's kind of uh, incredible to think about the fact that this plant employs 6,400 total. So it's drawing people from the broader region, but they employ a significant amount of folks from the region. And I think that's part of the reason why Nissan located in the South was that's part of their union avoidance strategy uh, to make folks very dependent upon the jobs, um, which are, relatively speaking, pretty high paying for the area. So, you know, the UAW has been trying to kind of crack the nut of the South for a long time, and they haven't been very successful. And uh, with a plant as large as this, a lot of folks were hoping that this would finally be the inroad uh, that the UAW needed into building up um, density in the industry. You know, so the UAW itself has had a deep decline in membership over the past four decades. It's gone from a high of one and a half million members in 1979 to where it is today of around 400,000. 
And over that uh, that period of time, the unionized workforce has really, you know, had its its working conditions eroded under competitive pressure from the influx of non-union foreign-owned auto manufacturers that are typically located in the South. Uh, and you know, Bob King famously in 2011, you know, he's the former president of the UAW. He said that if we don't organize these transnationals or these these foreign auto plants, I don't think there's a long-term future for the UAW. So the UAW really, in order to maintain the the conditions uh, that that they've been able to win in their contracts, much less to like actually as you know, uh, win concessions from the big three any further, they have to build up their union density in the industry overall, um, and that's that's proven extremely difficult for them to do. And that is not what happened. That is not what happened. They lost handedly about sixty to forty percent. So 3,700 people in the unit uh, out of 6,400, which I think is actually pretty remarkable that not a lot of people have talked about, is that about 3,000 people in the plant are either temp workers, meaning they're working for third-party corporations that are subcontracted out from Nissan, or they're, they're contractors, right? So a huge number of the workforce that's actually in there on the line performing the same jobs typically as full-time employees of Nissan um, are making lower wages, have fewer benefits, and weren't even eligible, according to the UAW, to, you know, in the, in, in, uh, there's questions, I think, about what's going to happen under the Trump NLRB. And one of the questions is, you know, this idea of joint employership. Um, but they weren't even trying to organize those workers, from what I can tell. Yeah. And I believe that the temp portion of the workforce has steadily increased over the years. So, of course, with this loss, the predictable analogy that many will draw is with the last big regional push. Um, to organize auto workers at the Volkswagen plant in Chattanooga, which is another union battle that I think you were following pretty closely. Um, do you feel like that's a fair comparison, having seen both losing union votes? And if so, what, if anything, was different about the way that this particular campaign was run? So I'm, I'm originally from Chattanooga, Tennessee. I work for Labor Notes now and live in Brooklyn, but I was actively involved in helping to, you know, uh, organized community support for the organizing drive there. And I know a lot of folks who work in the plant at Volkswagen. And I think that there are some interesting um, differences and parallels between both of the organizing drives. At Volkswagen, the company uh, was ostensibly neutral, right? Uh, so they weren't fighting it. There wasn't the massive employer opposi- opposition that we saw at Nissan. And the tack that the UAW took was really stressing partnership, this idea that like we're going to import the first German-style works council into the United States. You know, and they thought that this was something to be celebrated. And this comes after a long history, this decades long trajectory that the UAWs had of partnering with the employers and in, in increasing productivity and efficiency. And that was really dead on arrival for the workers in the workforce. I've interviewed dozens of workers over the years at Volkswagen, and all of them basically say the same thing, which is nobody ever, you know, gave uh, a, a darn about, as uh, how one worker put it, about a works council. Um, it never resonated with the workers. And I think that one of the lessons that the UAW has failed to learn is that workers don't join a union to be friendly with the company. Uh, they join because there's real issues on the job that they want to tackle, that they want to change. And that, that was not the, the line that the UAW took at, at Volkswagen. Um, they also didn't work with the community at all. Uh, they basically thought that because management was on their side and because they had access to the workers in the plant, that they would just naturally vote union. Um, what I think the UAW failed to recognize is that while the company was ostensibly neutral, the South was not. And so at Volkswagen, we really saw what was likely the largest third-party anti-union effort in the history of the United States. So mm-hmm. you know, right-wing groups came in and flooded the airwaves and the television. You know, they they had uh, community meetings. There was, you know, the Grover Norquist Americans for Tax Reform had an organization there. They were working with the Chamber of Commerce, the National Association of Manufacturers. And then they were working with the state's Republican leadership, right. which came out swinging against, the, against the, the union and actually was threatening to cut the subsidies to the company and, you know, actually undermine the chances of bringing further jobs there, which is, which is really insane to think about, that elected officials were, were threatening the employment of their own constituents. And that's how, because that's how much they hate unions. Um, so it really shows who they're working for. What, what's interesting is that happened in Chattanooga, and we saw that actually continue now at Nissan. So there was the, uh, the, this really incredible amount of, of employer opposition, which we come to expect in most union drives. And on top of that, you had Americans for Prosperity uh, dropping a lot of money into fighting the union there. And you also had the political establishment as well, um, including the Republican governor, uh, Phil Bryant of Mississippi, who came out and said, you know, if you want to take your job away, if you want manufacturing to, to end as we know it in Mississippi, then just start expanding unions. So I, I think that uh, in, in you know, what the UAW did right in, in Mississippi that was different from Volkswagen is that they, on the front end, were working really closely 
uh, with community organizations and with other labor groups. And I think that it's actually a benefit um, to, to the UAW that the labor movement as a whole felt invested enough in their campaign to get involved in it and to kind of take some collective ownership over it. I think that that's great. But in the end, you know, you can't offset a lack of internal organization in the plant with community support. I think community support is necessary, but it's not sufficient. Um, and I, I was speaking to a worker yesterday that was on a uh, was that was actually on the leadership committee and the organizing drive in the plant. And according to this worker, they only had 200 people on their organizing committee, which they themselves said that the organ that the UAW staff that was on site and their consultants were admitting that this was not enough and that they were worried about going into the election with so few people on the organizing committee. So, you know, it really sounds like the UAW consistently has this problem of building up enough of an internal organ organized presence in the plant to offset employer opposition or third party opposition. So what exactly were the workers telling you? Were, were the workers themselves expressing any kind of unease or, or how did they feel about the dynamics in their workplace? Well, so, I mean, like, there was a lot of issues in the workplace, obviously, that, that, that's been discussed in Nissan, high-paced production, safety concerns. Um, there's this fissured workplace. There's really three tiers that exist. You know, you've got the temp workers, then you've got the temp workers who have been brought on full-time, or what I call pathway workers, and then you've got the full-time employed Nissan workers, and they're all getting paid differently, even though they're often doing the same work. Mm -hmm. um, there's the discussions of racist favoritism, um, frozen pensions. Um, and then, you know, towards the end, the company began to threat to take away, threaten to take away some of the perks, um, uh, specifically like this lease program that they have with the workers in the plant. Um, you know, so Nissan is a large employer for the region. Many people drive large distances. And in order to be able to, to work there, they have to have an automobile. So um, the company has set up this program where they, they, they allow folks to lease cars from Nissan um, with no credit check. Um, and they get insurance through the company, um, and uh, and this provides them access to, to you know secure transportation for their job. Um, and the company was basically you know uh, among many threats that they were making. One of them was that this would be taken away in the case of unionization, which I think scared a lot of people. From what it sounds like, the union was not aware of the full extent to which people were um, were temp workers or full-time employees in the plant. I mean, it's, it's a very difficult position for the union to be in to try to, to determine, you know, who is actually a full-time employee that's going to be um, eligible to vote in the union election and then who is, you know, either working as a contractor or a temp, right? Mm -hmm. And so unless you have access to a list that's accurate, you're not going to be able to make that determination and then be able to talk to people and assess how they feel about the union and help them overcome the you know fear of you know and all the employer threats that, that Nissan was making. I wrote a story about temps and manufacturing a little while ago. It was 2014 that it came out and I talked to some of the folks within the union campaign or the Nissan campaign back then. And it was a particular thing, right? We had a hard time even getting a temp worker who would talk to me for a story even if I agreed to not use their name. You know, it was very much a lot of intimidation there. So you were saying that the one of the big differences between the Volkswagen and the Nissan campaign is that the Nissan plant, the anti-union campaign was coming from within the house, which is, you know, on some level what we expect, right? The Volkswagen one was the the outlier there in terms of them having a the company agreeing to be neutral. And so I want to talk a little bit more about the vehemence of this union busting. And also, um, you know, union busting is kind of a well-oiled machine at this point. This is a big, big business. And so, you know, to what extent should they have been sort of expecting what they saw, I guess? Yeah, so the only thing that I think that's particularly new or interesting about what they saw in Nissan was that there was the continuation of like the trifecta that we saw, uh, or the, there is a trifecta now of like the Republican political establishment in the state plus the Koch brothers plus the employer, right? Where typically you would just expect the employer before. So maybe that makes it a little bit worse, but not to the extent that I think the UAW is saying, like they're claiming this is the most vicious campaign they've ever seen. Um, I, I think that that's w way overblown. Um, that, that doesn't accord with the actual history of the UAW, uh, you know, from the early 20th century or even contemporary today organizing in a lot of manufacturing plants. A good example of that would be the Smithfield uh, plant, you know, the largest mm. port factory in the world in Tar Heel, North Carolina. Um, that was organized by the UFCW after 16 years. Um, and in that case, the, the, the workers were not only facing an employer that was threatening to shut down the plant, but that deputized its own uh, supervisors to be police officers and that would routinely arrest and beat employees that were active in the union campaign. 
Um, you know, so I, I think that uh, employer opposition is um, something that might be shocking to many people who aren't paying attention uh, to the realities of labor organizing. Um, but to those of us who, who are, you know, uh, labor activists or who follow labor organizing, it's it's something that we just come to expect. It's something that every union organizing strategy has to take into account from the very beginning. And so that means that a lot of work has to go into inoculating workers to the worst, um, the worst kinds of threats and the worst kinds of criminal activity. Employers routinely engage in violations of, of federal labor law because there's virtually no consequence for doing so. One thing that me and my coworker Samantha Winslow were talking about this and saying, like, you know, the, a strong organizing committee is like the best defense against an employer's anti-union strategy. And part of the problems that, of the UAW's approach is that they're not organizing to build a union. They're just organizing to try and win an election. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think, you know, going back to, as you mentioned, the Tennessee campaign where most of the um, the opposition was coming from outside. And also I want to bring in the, the Boeing election in South Carolina where you had Nikki Haley was still the governor briefly, um, famously talked about, you know, wearing high heels to kick the unions out. We have this situation now where you have the the union, you have the the state government, you have the federal government now, which is anti-union, um, which is another question we could ask, I guess, why they filed for this election under the Trump administration and not under the Obama administration. But, you know, so I want to talk about this sort of within the South, especially this tendency of the state government and local governments to get involved in these fights on the employer's side. Uh, since the 2010 uh, Citizens United decision in the United States, we've seen an influx of it, of billionaire money going um, in a lot of directions, but specifically to state governments. And we've seen the um, organization of shadowy, you know, uh, business funded and financed and employer advocacy organizations like Americans for Prosperity that are operating at the state level. And they're actually putting immense pressure on state governments to um, pursue their agenda. And so I think that's part of what we're seeing happen at the state level is that corporations are just becoming far more politically active and organized because they recognize that there's a huge opening now to expend more money and to get a bigger bang for their buck out of the out of controlling the government. Um, and so, you know, it's it it, it is shocking to see a, a Republican state legislator come out and say, you know, I will actually, um, you know, uh, take away a subsidy deal and and cut 2000 jobs from my own community because uh, the political calculation they're making is that they're more afraid of being primaried by somebody on the right who is receiving financing and funding and support from Americans for Prosperity and other groups like it than they are from, you know, the working class because they're unorganized. So when you have places with such a low union density, with um, little political organization being able to actually pursue a progressive agenda, these are the kinds of things that we're going to see. And I think that a lot of folks, like every union election turns into like this referendum on the South, right? right. I think part of it is because we don't see really big organizing drives anymore um, because so much of the South is unorganized. But really, if you think about it, the conditions that exist in the South are quickly becoming the conditions that we're seeing nationally. You know, you can't count on favorable conditions, I think, in most places, Wisconsin, Michigan, Indiana, right? Um, you know, a lot of, you know, and as union uh, as union density drops, fewer and fewer working class people have favorable experiences with unions, right? Not to say that they have unfavorable experiences, but they have none at all, right? Mm -hmm. They're just largely unorganized. And when 94% of the private sector is unorganized, they don't really have, you know, a history or family members to talk to or friends in their community or neighbors that, that they can look at and see, like, as emulating a good example of what's possible. Without fixating just on the South too much and trying to draw a larger picture out of what went on and, and what can be learned from it. I mean, do you, you talked um, a moment ago about how UAW doesn't seem to be learning from some of its past mistakes. Um, but, you know, what can organizers generally draw from this type of electoral outcome and going forward, I guess? What does it say about how maybe outmoded or... Um, some of the deficits in the more traditional organizing systems uh, that we're used to seeing. Yeah, I, I mean, so I think in, in some ways, like what we need is a return to what we know works, right? Um, you know, thinking about the actual global production chain. So why are so many auto manufacturers, you know, foreign owned auto automakers locating in the South, right? Well, the United States has a has a huge consumer market for automobiles, and we have now a large reserve of of cheap labor. 
So it's, it's actually foreign automakers are incentivized to um, produce uh, automobiles in the United States and cut down on their costs overall, especially when local state governments are willing to subsidize the construction of these plants, right? So that's what we're seeing happen. And, and it's not just the, the large auto manufacturing plant that's located in the South that comes here. It's also the entire production chain. So oftentimes the auto parts suppliers will locate close to the factories in order to increase efficiency. And because of, um, because of the working conditions have deteriorated so much in these industries, the auto parts suppliers are no longer producing products to then warehouse. They produce them what they call just in time. So they typically get a day or two lead from the auto plants, these you know, the big manufacturing plants that we see in Canton at Nissan, to tell them how many parts they need to produce. So if workers in auto parts plants who are typically working for lower wages, right, for fewer benefits and worse working conditions, if they have a work stoppage of any kind, it actually disrupts the entire production chain. So there's a huge amount of leverage that some of these workers have just by virtue of where they work that the UAW could be leveraging if they were actively organizing these workers. And I think it's a big question of why they're not pursuing that kind of a strategy everywhere in the country, right? Because all of the major manufacturers are using this just-in-time production process. So I think that there are like real ways that the UAW can um, can organize and 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 do it in a way that's adversarial, that builds hope, that creates a, you know the threat of a good example that other people can follow. Yeah, I think that that's a real you know we I don't want to you know make you go too hard on second guessing this, but you know it seems like they filed an election without a big organizing committee, as you noted, without a majority of the workforce, of the potential bargaining unit anyway, having signed cards and without even having a good list of, of who is in the plant and whether they're temps or not and who would even be in the bargaining unit. And so, you know, even taking into account the question of whether we should be organizing purely for the NLRB process, which is a really big question, or whatever, um, what are the, you know, the things that went wrong in this campaign, some of which maybe were also things that went wrong at the Boeing plant or at the, you know, the other plant that we can learn not to do again, maybe this time? (laughs) Yeah, well, both Volkswagen and Boeing uh, didn't use house calls, uh, which is pretty crazy, right? So they didn't have organizers or anyone else going and visiting workers in the safety and security of their own home to actually assess how pro-union they are. Um, it seems to me, based on the conversation I have had with, you know, with, with, with Nissan workers and others, that um, in all cases, like basically the limit of assessing a, a worker's support is based on whether they signed a card or not, which is really weak, right? Um, it's not based on whether or not they're willing to engage in collective action in the workplace, whether or not they're willing to like, you know, uh, stick together and take some collective risk. Um, and so, you know, just thinking about it from the perspective of a worker, right, is that when you've got these automakers that are making really genuine threats about, you know, uh, about them packing up and leaving and going home, something that would just decimate your community. And then you've got the governor in your state echoing what they're saying, right? And you've got all of these right-wing groups coming and saying the same thing. You have to kind of make a rational assessment. Do I think that the UAW has enough power to overcome the company? Or do I think the company has more power to overcome the union? Right. And I think a lot of workers are siding with the company on this, like they're rightfully scared. And the only way to get them to move beyond that fear is if they start taking collective action together and actually pushing the company and winning concessions. So if you're not engaging in that kind of organizing work from the bottom up, actually in the plant, I don't think you're going to be able to overcome the employer opposition or third party opposition. I do think that the UAW uh, has a hope that the French government, which is a majority stakeholder in, Re- in Renault, I think is how you pronounce it. My French isn't very good, um, which is a partner and owns like 40 percent of the shares in Nissan, that they'll be able to lean on them by showing how horrendous Nissan's anti-union um, opposition was. Right. I mean, like because what happens in the United States, the employer opposition that we face is, you know, a scandal, you know, compared to the rest of the world. Right. No other Western industrialized nation would accept what we accept here. Right. Um, and so I think they're hoping that the French government will, will weigh uh, in on this and, and, and push Nissan to neutrality. But, you know, from what the UAW did at, at Volkswagen, I have no reason to believe that neutrality is going to be sufficient, right, that they're going to be capable of winning and even with that. That's a particular point that, you know, they also filed a lot of unfair labor practice charges. But, of course, we're looking at a Trump NLRB that is probably not going to intervene very significantly in this process. And so, you know, I was wondering if that was 
in any way baked into the strategy. Like they must have known that the odds of losing this election were pretty good. I would hope so. I mean, I would, you know, I would hope that they would know that based on what they were hearing the workers tell them from inside the plant, right? I mean, you, you'd, you'd hope that they would have an idea of where they were at. I, I really have no idea. I mean, speaking of, you know, the, under the Trump administration, what this means, you know, the, the Nissan campaign had a lot of um, national media coverage. Bernie Sanders, Nina Turner were behind it. They had Danny Glover on board, um, a broad sort of uh, labor community coalition. The NAACP got involved. Um, and there was definitely sort of a historical resonance there um, because it was Mississippi. It was the heart of the South. And, and yet... You know, all of that seemed to signal this widespread grassroots community support. But it seems like at the end of the day, that's maybe not ultimately what mattered to the individual workers. And do you have a sense of maybe what did matter in the end to the workers or why didn't why didn't all that sort of high profile messaging, you know, end up uh, changing the dynamics? Well, I mean, you know, union organizing drives are really intense. And in, in this case, what you, you know, one person I talked to um, described it as a war zone, right? I mean, like the, the, the goal of the company is to build the tension up as much as they can into the, into the minds and the hearts of, of workers and their families and their neighbors and in the community, right? They want people to be afraid. They want them to be scared. They want them to feel like the only way that this is ever going to go away is if you vote the union out. And I think I think a lot of people were feeling it. And I don't feel like they feel like, you know, just because the NAACP, you know, as great as they are supporting us, that they're going to be able to tell this company to stay here, right? That they're going to have enough power or leverage over this company to make sure that they don't take away the, you know, the lease for my car, right? So again, I think it's just workers make an assessment based on what they think is best for their family and whether they think they can actually win. And if they have no history of, of unionization, if they have no connection to unions, if they've never experienced a union, um, and they've never taken collective action together and won concessions from the company, then that means that they've never actually seen this be possible, right? So I don't think, you know, I think that community support is necessary, but it's not sufficient to be able to overcome this kind of level of employer opposition. Going forward, where do you see the UAW going from here in the South? Do you think that there will be more pushes to organize auto workers? Um, will they be forced to sort of step back and retreat and kind of regroup as far as their tactics go? Do you feel like there maybe this focus on organizing the South will turn towards other sectors um, that have maybe had more success uh, in, in unionizing or at least forming sort of a, a greater worker consciousness um, in that region? Yeah, so I mean, the UAW has been focused on several plants in the South. Uh, there's Volkswagen, Tennessee, Mercedes-Benz in uh, Vance, Alabama, Alabama, uh, sorry, and Nissan in Canton, Mississippi, and BMW in Spartanburg, South Carolina. Um, it, it, it kind of seems like it's all burnt turf right now. Um, you know, at Volkswagen, they were capable of winning a micro unit, uh, you know, uh, election. So they have, you know, they, they won an election to represent about 160 people in the skilled trades unit. And even though they won that election uh, and the courts have routinely ruled that the company is, is refusing to bargain with them, the company is just continuing to refuse to bargain. Right. Uh, and it's just being litigated and, and a lot of lawyers are getting rich off of it. Um, so, you know, without having an in-plant strategy to be able to even deal with that, uh, the UAW has been hamstrung, even when they've won an election. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I, I, I don't know what the what it holds. I will say that I think it's great that the UAW has put money and, and resources and time into trying to organize unorganized workers in the South. I think that, you know, part of it comes from urgency and the, and the necessity of it, but I think it's great that they're doing it. I hope that they continue to do it. I think that they obviously need to totally reevaluate their strategy. Um, and then, you know, I think that like, you know, just as an aside, looking at um, what happened, uh, uh, you know, with the recent corruption scandal, right, where a UAW vice president was getting basically payouts from Chrysler, um, you know, through this jointness program that, you know, the, the, the cut that the UAW has set up again, this is part of their partnership ideology is they have things like apprenticeship programs that are financed by the employer and managed by the UAW. And those are just openings for corruption, right? Um, and that's kind of the dead end that we see with these partnership strategies. And I hope that the UAW starts to abandon it. But I don't think that's going to happen unless there is um, a wave of um, organizing inside the UAW by the rank and file to, to force it from the labor leadership and, and to, to really start charting out a new direction. Mm-hmm. Do you see other sectors where there's more of a promise in terms of building stronger unions? Well, I don't want people to think that like manufacturing is impossible in the South either, right? I mean, 
the UFCW just had a really impressive victory. They organized um, the sole Lipton factory in the United States that manufactures all the tea for North America, and they did it in Virginia, uh, you know, like the, the heart of the Confederacy. Um, and they did it with a multiracial working class workforce. They, and they just uh, they just ratified their first contract, which was, uh, you know, from from what I can tell, it looks really great. Um, so I think that there are examples today of unions that are doing it right. Um, mm. They're just not getting the same kind of attention typically uh, just because the national media doesn't pay attention until they think it's like a referendum on the labor movement or organizing <laughs> in the South overall. Right. We have we have talked about that perhaps a little bit about how every story about this is like if they just win this one then the south will sort of crack open which is like as we know this is not true right that like one victory somewhere doesn't mean that like capital rolls over and and gives us full communism that's not how this game works but so to to sort of go big at the end here we are operating in the trump era we are under an unfriendly nlrb which was not particularly easy to win elections with in eight years of Obama, um, Congress that would love nothing more than to send a national right to work bill to Trump's desk, a Supreme Court that is just getting ready to gut public sector union rights. So all of labor is facing the prospect, as you said, of organizing in basically the South. So what is your advice sort of looking, looking at the history of organizing in the South, what has worked, what hasn't worked? What should organizers and union supporters be thinking about for the future in which, you know, the NLRB process is, is all but dead? So I'll say a few things. I don't think there's a silver bullet. I don't think that there are shortcuts. I think that it's going to be hard and difficult. Um, and, you know, it's going to, it's going to require us to make uh, a lot of attempts and, and probably fail a lot. Um, but it does seem like there are some strategic choke points in capitalism that we should probably be focusing on that I don't see a lot of work going into. You know, as much as globalization has created the opportunity for companies to offshore or outsource production to other areas of the country, you know, to whipsaw workers against each other, like Boeing workers in Puget Sound or whip, you know, whipsawed against uh, workers in uh, South Carolina. It's still the case that um, that they're reliant on these global production chains, and they typically actually have like you know major hubs where they all meet up. So there are hundreds of thousands of people that are employed in that chain, and if any part of it shuts down, it can really do damage to all the rest of it. And I think that that's part of the picture that labor has to figure out is how do we make inroads into organizing workers in these strategic sectors of the economy that are capable of actually having leverage over capital in a big way. That was Chris Brooks of Labor Notes. You can find links to his work and to more at Labor Notes on this subject at the Descent website. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And now it is time for everyone's favorite segment, Arg, I wish I'd written that. This Wednesday was the third anniversary of the death of Michael Brown at the hands of Ferguson, Missouri police officer Darren Wilson, and debates about the role of police in society and in the labor movement are as fresh as ever. This week, the folks at the Washington Post, Kimberl Kelly, Wesley Lowry, and Stephen Rich, to be exact, have a major investigation up into how many police officers fired for, quote, misconduct that, dis- that betrayed the public's trust were later rehired after appeals, many of them through union contracts. The debate about police unions and their role in the labor movement rages on. We have discussed this several times on past episodes. And as NYPD officers are in the midst of a boycott of Dunkin' Donuts for a perceived insult to the force, it's really worth taking a look at this piece and other arguments about this subject, considering both the power that police unions have, which is unusual even among labor unions, and their role in broader society. Most of these officers rehired got their jobs back when an arbitrator, which is of course provided for in their union contract, overruled the police chief. They have included a San Antonio police officer caught on dash cam challenging a handcuffed man to fight him for the chance to be released, an officer convicted of sexually abusing a young woman in his patrol car, and an officer returned to work despite being accused of lying, drunkenness, and driving a suspected gunman from the scene of a nightclub killing. 
Charles H. Ramsey, former police commissioner in Philadelphia and police chief in the District of Columbia, said, It's demoralizing, but not just the chief. It's demoralizing to the rank and file who really don't want to have these kinds of people in their ranks. It causes a tremendous amount of anxiety in the public. Our credibility is shot whenever these things happen. Yes, I would say that is an accurate statement, Chief Ramsey. The Post study covered 37 departments, which disclosed that they had fired a combined 1,881 officers since 2006. Of those officers, 451 successfully appealed and won their jobs back. The kinds of reinstatements that the Post records would make the typical shift worker salivate with envy. Quote, one officer convicted of assault after he was caught on video attacking a shoe store employee was fired in 2015 and reinstated in 2016 after an arbitrator concluded that police had missed the deadline by seven days. Arbitration records show. End quote. Police unions argue that some reinstate, such reinstatements are necessary to prevent officers from being held to an unfair standard. James Pascoe, executive director of the National Fraternal Order of Police, argued their work is constantly scrutinized to a far higher degree. You very seldom see any phone cam indictments of trash collectors or utility workers. One might note that trash collectors or utility workers, despite having jobs that are in fact more dangerous than policing, yes, that's right, around 15 police officers are killed per 100,000 on the job or a year, compared to 32 trash collectors and 23 electrical power line workers, but they are not armed and do not regularly kill or abuse members of the public. It is worth noting also that many of the officers accused of brutality and who kill civilians are supported by their departments. This study is only of those whose departments have already fired them. The article includes eight stories of extreme cases in which police officers were rehired for your perusal. I will just encourage you to go read the whole thing. We should say, many of the arguments used against police unions can sound at first blush like those used against other public sector workers, but these arguments are in fact turned on police unions far less often than they are on other public workers. And as this article does an excellent job of pointing out, police unions are in fact much stronger than the average labor organization while almost never using their bargaining rights to bargain for the common good. Instead, the contracts in this article take business unionism to an extreme, defending the rights of officers to literally get away with murder. And my pick for this week is an excerpt of David Rodiger's latest book. It appears online and in these times. It's called It's Not Just Class. The fight for racial justice is inseparable from overcoming capitalism. The perennial question that turns up with every generation's debate on social inequality is race versus class, and the usual loaded answer, of course, is both and, not either or. Fair enough, but what do we really mean when we say phrases like black labor matters or solidarity with the 99%? Are we ignoring one set of issues for another? Are we marginalizing race or marginalizing class or simply talking past each other? David Rodiger is an old-timer. He predates many of the postmodern semantical debates about how to phrase certain ideas, but he takes a hard-nosed historical perspective on how the movements for civil rights and for labor rights have marched in solidarity with each other over the past few generations and also been pitted against each other by manipulative forces of politics and capital. And it's possible to compellingly argue over when the two must go hand in hand, Yet movement building is simply not that simple, which is why looking back at some of the regressions that both the labor and civil rights movements have faced over the years shows that they've declined from their peak in the mid-20th century in part because they grew apart despite clear shared interests. He writes, in the 1950s and 1960s, a period of intense and constant struggle for gains by workers and by the civil rights movement, the permeability of the categories of race and class emerged in sharp relief. The expanding horizons created by the movements against racial oppression made all workers think more sharply about new tactics, new possibilities, and new freedoms. The spread of wildcat strikes across the color lines is one example. The high hopes for Martin Luther King Jr. invested in both the Poor People's Campaign and the strike of black sanitation workers in Memphis 
reminds us of a period that could test ideas and practice and could experience, if not always appreciate, the tendency for self-activity among people of color to generate possibilities for broader working class mobilizations, unquote. Organizing, in other words, is more than about rhetoric. It's about people and perception of your own movement and of others. And among the many misperceptions we must continually stumble upon as we learn more about how to organize is that we tend to assume certain truths about the tensions between labor justice, economic justice on the one hand, and racial justice and multiculturalism on the other. In fact, working class people have been at the heart of many so-called identity struggles, just as many labor rights campaigns have been able to advance by appealing to a strong sense of racial and gender justice attached to the broader fight for equity in the workplace. Rodiger takes aim specifically at the common canard on the left that paying too much attention to diversity and multiculturalism is somehow distracting or risks being co-opted by corporate interests. There's a grain of truth in that, but he counters that this approach is fundamentally flawed because, quote, it loses track of the extent to which working class people participate in and shape initiatives such as immigrant rights, trans rights, and anti-racist mobilization, and therefore misses working class victories as momentous as those won in 2006 mass mobilizations by immigrant workers. Second, it substitutes denunciation for attempts to build coalitions, encouraging those oppressed in differing ways to come together and deepen the demands of all, unquote. And finally, it tends to limit the scope of our own self-critique to petty partisan politics, particularly within the Democratic Party. Rather than looking for saboteurs at every turn, Rodiger argues, progressives should realize together that the recent failures of organized labor are much better understood as failures of the labor leadership than the result of being outfoxed by multiculturalists, unquote. To move forward, both movements have to recognize the fundamental vital value in linking race and class debates, not just because the two communities share common interests in defeating capital, but because movement-wise, they are stronger together and must rely strategically on each other for a greater good, particularly by encouraging workers' movements together to think creatively about class struggle beyond class per se and inequality beyond poverty and precarity per se. Rodiger concludes, struggles for racial justice are sites of learning for white workers, of self-activity by workers of color, and of placing limits on capital's ability to divide workers. Instead of constantly wringing our hands over a false dichotomy between race and class, we should look at two alternatives before both movements. Let ourselves be divided, or let us conquer together. And that concludes another episode of Belabored. Thanks again to Natasha for making us sound good. Tune in in two weeks for another episode. In the meantime, you can get in touch with us on Twitter at hashtag belabored, or you can email us with any questions, comments, ideas for shows, labor grievances. If you're organizing an auto plant near you, let us know. If you have something to say about the UAW, let us know about that too. Get us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. Over and out. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag Belabored. <laughs>